Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello everyone and welcome to the 19th episode of our podcast. Today I have the opportunity to share with you a conversation I recently had with an incredible person. His name is Alan Sparks and he knows a lot about risk. As a frontline police officer with 20 years service, he's the only Australian ever to receive Australia's highest bravery decoration. The majority of Alan's services were carried out with high levels of physical and mental health. However, Things changed and changed rapidly. Eventually, Alan was diagnosed with PTSD and chronic depression after his life almost ended with an on-duty suicide attempt. His path to recovery is a testament of his inner strength and unwavering determination. Listen in as I chat to Alan about his progression from positive psychological health to chronic psychological ill health. Thanks very much. All right, welcome to the podcast. Uh, with me today, I have the pleasure of uh, introducing to our listeners, Alan Sparks. Alan, welcome. G'day, Sam. How are you? I'm um, really good. Thanks very much for coming along to not just the conference, but also to be able to uh, talk and discuss all things mental health and what you've been up to with your experience uh, in the history of your uh, professional career and what a career you've had. Uh, it's such an such experience there that I've, I've been reading about and the list just keeps going with the achievements, less <laughs> you know. Um, it's truly remarkable. Uh, and to give you a quick, a quick over, uh, overview of some of the, the key achievements, just to name a few, um, we've got here, uh, he is one of five Australians in the past 44 years to be awarded the Cross of Valor, which is Australia's highest bravery decoration. But he's also been awarded the Australian, um, sorry, the only Australian to be awarded the subsequent national bravery decoration as well, with the, which is the commendation uh, of brave, for bravery conduct. Hmm. That's, that's amazing. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second, but then also you've, you've also been awarded um, uh, the Medal of Order uh, for Australia, of Australia. Hmm. Uh, what year was that? Was uh, that? I received that uh, 2017. Okay, so that's pretty recent. Yes. Uh, congratulations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as, amongst the other things, obviously against your name as well, you've done such a, uh, such a lot of things and a lot of experience, <laughs> yeah, which I'm, yeah. I'm really keen to talk about. Thanks, but Sam. If we just talk, t- touch base where it all started. So you, where did you grow up? I grew up in a very small village in the central west of New South Wales, a little town called Cumnock. Uh, had a huge population of about 250 people in the town, wow. about 500 in the district. So my mum was from a farming background. My dad um, had business in the town. Uh, both were born and raised in the area, as were their mums and dads. So very, very strong link to my ancestral homelands. Uh, my mum's still alive. She's just wow. turned 89, still drives a big V8 around, oh, <laughs> around the area. So yeah, it's, um, I think uh, in, 
country boy. Yeah, very much so. And I, um, after going to school, I, I worked in that rural area. I was a jackaroo, I was a shearer, and a wool presser, and played rugby union in that area, which is a really good comp to play rugby in. Yes. So I, but I think um, I was really fortunate with my dad. My dad taught me a lot of, of skills about how to, how to really appreciate the basics of life, yeah. how to be able to look after yourself. Um, is that where you got the interest to want to be a police officer? Yeah, I think it did. A very good friend of my dad's was a police officer. He was the local police officer in the town when I was growing up. Um, dad had a lot of friends who were police officers. And I think that, unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to university. My family um, back then couldn't afford to send me away. I didn't know there's any other options of going to university. I desperately wanted to become a geologist, but I just couldn't do it. So my next plan was what can I do that I think would, would appeal to me would be good for my type of personality because I love variety, mm. uh, I, I like intrigue. And back then, you know, a lot of the guys I was at school with were going to university and I knew that they was, you know, it was a really hard struggle for them financially. And that, yeah, the cops provided a pretty good salary. So I thought, well, I can go and try it. If I don't like it, I can bail out and I'll come home and go shearing and keep playing footy. So I had I had a backup plan, but uh, as it turned out, I joined the cops and I absolutely loved it. Yeah, so so you were a police officer, active police officer for 20 years, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And was that in that area of country New South Wales? Is that where you were predominantly based? Two parts. I did my training at Redfern. And then after a very short space of time, as the training was back then, mm. I went to Darlinghurst. And Darlinghurst was uh, what they call the head station of number three division. And number three division was Darlinghurst and King's Cross. So I did some training at Darlinghurst for a few months. Then I went to King's Cross and walked on the beat at King's Cross mm -hmm. uh, when I was still 19 years of age. And then I spent a couple of years in uniform and then I started my plain clothes training to become qualified as a detective. So I still worked in those areas. I worked in other parts of Sydney and then came back to Darlinghurst where I completed my detective's training, became qualified as a detective and continued working there um, until I had a, a, how would you say, a discussion one evening with a certain detective named, oh, we don't have to name him, but he's quite, uh, quite uh, infamous working um, in the city and as a result of that heated discussion um, my career path changed uh, as, it, as did his and uh, from there I then went to the detectives training course where I, where I was a lecturer mm -hmm. um, then spent some time back in uniform back into plain clothes back into the CIB and then in 1989 I moved to Coffs Harbour where I worked in the mid north coast and the north coast of New South Wales um, up until I became um, very, very unwell. Yeah, so if if we look at that, I mean, and we'll get to, to I guess, the point of, of where you, uh, you realised yourself about the position with where you were at, but, I mean, leading into that, up to that point, do you look back now and, and think, well, there were lots of signs, but I just, I wasn't aware, or, or was there, hindsight's obviously a wonderful thing, but had you have been more aware of uh, clue, key symptoms and stuff like that. Is there, do you feel like now you're looking back that you, it was a leading up to the event or the time where you actually, um, yeah, where you, where you were gonna take your life. Hmm. Did you feel like that 
that looking back on your career that there was some big signs? Oh, look, I, uh, it's, it's like I have been able to open up this amazing book and realise now the, the pathway of exactly what happened to me going from a person who was psychologically at peak levels of psychological health and fitness and peak levels of, of physical health and fitness. So I went from being extremely well, and this is after many, many years in my career. All through my career, I was exposed to and experienced a whole raft of operational police matters, which you may say, well, they would normally cause some sort of psychological distress, but they actually didn't. So I realise now what actually happened to me. I went from being like totally physically and psychologically well in a relatively short space of time, starting to develop post-trauma-like symptoms and symptoms of trauma-related mental illnesses. But also I realised that the changes to me physically were integral in relation to the degradation of my psychological health. So I'm able to pinpoint pretty much where things mm. changed and, and why they changed and how, how I've now worked out that I can see causational factors which are mm. pretty much parallel across not only police officers but paramedics, uh, anyone involved in first response, including our volunteers, yes. um, our military. So I think there are some very strong parallels that it's really important that what I'll be talking about tomorrow is, yeah. is what are they? Mm. And what, what are the things that changes in your lifestyle that causes such a significant impact on your psychological health and your physiological health? And they're the things that I'm really grateful for that I've been able to, to identify. Mm. And now I use that knowledge to help me, again, have really high levels of physical and psychological health. Yes. To better identify this at an earlier stage. Yeah, it's important that we, we need to understand that you know, our, our brains, minds and bodies are impacted by what we do and our environment that we are in and the events that we are involved in. And I think there was always a perception that you develop PTSD because of things that you see or are involved in. Exposed yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, of course. But also I think we need to look at, well, how is a person, how is that person's state of physical health prior to that incident? And for me, I was in a very poor state of physical health which I say I was in a state of chronic stress. I was burnt out. Mm. And because I was burnt out, I had nothing to fight off the development of the symptoms of the trauma-related mental illnesses I was developing. I, I just became worse and worse. And again, what I contributed to as far as the decline. So that's what I think is, is a message that we need to, to mm. really spread out far and wide. And so, '89, you moved to Coffs. Yes. Uh, and then, uh, you, what was your role with Coffs Harbour, the police? At that stage, I had been trained as a special weapons operator in okay. Sydney. And moving to Coffs Harbour uh, in the country, you don't have permanent special weapons operators. You have what they call state state protection support unit officers. So we do a part time role, and we don't have the equipment. Nothing like the equipment we had in Sydney. Um, we don't have the training. We're not we're not trained to do things like night entries, emergency action entries. Um, it's more of a contain and negotiate sort of situation. Um, I was a detective, so I was investigating, um, involved in the investigation of, of criminal offences, serious criminal offences, and uh, heavily involved in the community. You know, again, playing rugby union, mm. um, 
my wife, my, sorry, my then partner who moved up with me, Deb was also a detective. She was working the child protection unit. Uh, Deb was a brilliant sports person, so she was playing um, A-grade basketball. I was coaching their team. Yeah. Um, so we had a massive community in, in involvement and engagement. And so whilst we were very busy work-wise, uh, we had a wonderful social life and uh, we, we lived in a great area. We, we lived, had a little farm, we grew our own vegetables, had our own, <laughs> own eggs, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So life was, was great. And then in 1993, Deb and I went to Paris. We were married in Paris. We rode our push bikes around Europe for five months. Yeah, we rode those pushies 6,000 kilometers around Europe. It's amazing. Um, up and over the Alps, up into Norway. So we came back like physically, fit. phenomenally fit and psychologically like we were just ready to smash it out of the park. We were both so really well. And less than three years, three years later, here I am with my service revolver in my hand ready to end my life. So three years, so between that point and three years later. Yeah, less than three years actually, yeah. Were there certain, was it, was it a burden that you had on yourself? Was it, was it, was it? physically related you stopped yeah, being yeah, active yeah. you stopped that's exactly being right the, sleep. That, what were some of the triggers for you that was part of the process sam and you've you've really identified it very quickly things changed there were noticeable changes predominantly one of the the starting factors was was that in relation to my workload my workload increased to levels i had never experienced before in, in relation to a particular investigation i had been tasked with okay without going into all the details of it yeah. Um, the this particular investigation, there was a particular mindset of everybody else bar me that a particular person had committed a very, very serious crime. I believe that he hadn't committed it. So I had to spend a lot of, most of my time trying to disprove this particular person had committed this criminal offence, whilst everyone is telling me that A, you're, you're an idiot, and B, stop wasting time mm -hmm. and charges, charge him. So it caused a massive amount of conflict. My workplace became very toxic. Mm. And the workload, the toxicity, caused me to stop doing the things that I would normally do. So uh, my, my physical training program changed because I was working so hard, I stopped the exercise I was doing. I was going to, to I was getting home so angry, wound up, mm. worried all the time, thinking ahead, so I'd start to turn to alcohol to try and settle down, wasn't eating properly, and my stress levels changed from being manageable to then being unmanageable. And that situation became worse and worse and worse. Probably the first and most significant factor which you correctly identified was the changes to my the quality of my sleep. Is that right? Because I was getting to bed so late, I wasn't going to sleep. I was waking up really tired and exhausted turning to caffeine to try and kickstart into the day, that process was the starting point. Mm. And away it went from there. And then I was involved in, in some particularly horrific incidents yeah. that I realise now were the precursors to, to the development of full-blown PTSD and chronic depression. How, how do you, police officers, emergency services in general, how, how do you prepare people for, I mean, because I mean, they're going to see things that, you know, are, are going to trigger or going to be emotionally, uh, uh, I guess, what's the word? Uh, like to, to see bodies and all these other stuff that you see. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the stuff that, that they're exposed to is not obviously something that we're 
typically most people see, right? So how just blanket across the sector, I mean, how how do you prepare this? Not not you personally, but how does the sector, how do people get prepared for this stuff? And and is it more being emotionless about it all? I mean, I I think it's, it's understanding that whatever you do in your life, is going to impact you in some way. It might be a positive impact, it yeah. might be a negative impact, it could be just completely neutral. But there will be some there'll be some impact. And it's how how we learn how to respond to that impact. So for me, I didn't realise how not only dangerous my sleep patterns had become, but also that by by not sleeping properly and getting the quality sleep I needed, how that then left me vulnerable to other factors okay. which would have potentially an equally significant impact on my physiological health. Okay. So we need to explain we need to educate people about, yes, your work will expose you to various things and it may cause you to change your behaviours. Those changes could be positive, but also they could be negative. And if those changes become negative, these are the consequences of those negative behaviours. So we have to educate. As far as the impact upon the brain and the mind of trauma, then I think that, with great respect, requires a a clinical perspective on how to best prepare people Mm. for that. I know that from my time in the country, whilst it wasn't human death, I was exposed to a lot of death and and misery Mm. through, um, through the work I was doing. And very early in my police career, I was significantly exposed to human death in ways that I had never imagined. Yeah. Did it impact me negatively? No, it didn't. But it certainly prepared me for some pretty crappy stuff that was coming yeah. my way. Yeah. But, but I think um, to, to answer your question, two particular matters that, that did really rock me, um, they're things that... I think was so unique. Um, the the impact in that was something I was never prepared for. But it wasn't helped by the fact that you weren't sleeping well. The stress levels were up. So do you think that also snowballed that as well, or do you think isolated the incidents in its own, even if you're at your peak state, I've still been triggering? I think that I would have been impacted, but not to the degree that I was, okay. because I was so physiologically. Run down. Mm. Um, I was I was chronically stressed. I was burnt out and so vulnerable. Mm. So the key is, if we know that there's a progression from being physically well, psychologically well, towards burning out, that's when we need to intercept. But we need to educate people about causation, mm. not just focusing on you will get PTSD because of this, this, and this, based on the elements of DCM five. There's a whole lot more I think that works in the background that makes people vulnerable. And that's what we're not doing. Mm. You would have seen since the time that you first came in the police office and the police force, um, the changes uh, in the integration or the onboarding or or the um, uh, inductions into the police. Mm -hmm. Have you seen uh, advancements, significant advancements in that since uh, your time? Are you seeing things a lot better? The the positives I see are there. There's an overall appetite for knowledge. We Tragically, we are still seeing that there are incredibly high numbers of police being discharged medically from 
their service, and a very, very high proportion, like 90% above of those discharges, relate to a psychological injury. Now, that's completely unacceptable. So there's two things I see. One is we are losing too many police officers through psychological injury, which I believe can be reduced dramatically. But what I also see is there is now an awareness like, okay, we, our cops, we're losing our cops. And obviously what we're doing is not right. So what can we do? But I think that there creates a problem. Well, nobody really is, is stepping up and saying, yep, this is what we need to do. They're being bombarded with suggestions from a whole raft of individuals, organisations saying, we've got the magic panacea we can fix this problem but they just don't know which way to go because there's so much out there there's so much information saying this is what you do this is how you stop it but there is an appetite and i do see some very wise commanders being very proactive in their approach i think the general consensus is and certainly is growing is that the reactive model is busted and broken mm -hmm. we have to be proactive yeah i think there's more and more agreements that we have to be proactive the question is now, how do we sort the wheat from the chaff to work out what works proactively mm. and what's a waste of time? Yeah. And at what point we need to integrate it, like or like yeah. doing it in the induction process and getting them better awareness throughout that and education through that? Yeah, look, my um, my initial view was, um, you know, educate as early as possible. Yeah. And then I had a, a meeting with um, the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Mick Fuller, and Mick, I have a lot of respect for Mick. I think he's a very, very smart man. And Mick said, yeah, look, I value your opinion, but the reality is when you were at the academy, would you have listened to anybody talk about mental health? I said, no, I wouldn't, because I never believed I could ever be a person who suffered from mental ill health. He said, so how do you overcome that? And I said, well, I think the reality is, as you educate them about, you take away the, the term mental health for a start, because people will switch off. Yeah. So we start to talk about brain and mind health, lifestyle and, and impact to make it valuable that people will be motivated for when they leave the academy that they will continue a healthy lifestyle. Mm. And we know from the research that Beyond Blue did, the answer in the call research, mm. that up to two years, most first responders have a good to high level of physical and psychological health. After two years, that's can for most or a very high percentage, of bigger pardon, start to decline exponentially in relation to years of service. Wow. So two years, I see, well, there's an opportunity there. But I think we need to stagger our education program to meet the operational requirements of our first responders. I don't think we can over-educate, but it has to be quality that we're giving mm -hmm. them, not just quantity. And how much of a role do you think of peer workers should be involved in that? Do, do you think having people that have that are coming in to talk to the academy people because I mean people like yourself who they thought well it, nah it'll never happen to me mm. could couldn't you know I'll definitely not have that problem but do you think it's more it will resonate more with people to have sorts of peer workers or people that have been there in that situation before to come talk to them? There's enormous value in appropriate lived experience. Whilst I respect lived experience and what people have lived through. I think it's critically important we have appropriate lived experience for the subject, for the audience, for the future that they are going to face. I do know that a lot of people 
will relate to others who have a lived experience that they are going through, knowing full well that they have recovered. So for, exa for example, somebody who has experienced trauma-related mental illness, has become suicidal, has attempted to end their life, and has recovered from that suicidal ideation, gives hope to those that are really struggling that they can recover. That is a critical element mm -hmm. of peer support. Mm -hmm. So it's very important then that you have people who have the capacity mm -hmm. to spread the correct message, but also have the capacity to cope with mm -hmm. the impact of dealing with people who are suicidal mm -hmm. or, or in a state of, of extreme psychological distress. Yeah. So it's just not a matter of having peer support workers or peer workers, it's a matter of having the right people. Yes, no, that makes sense. So in that two and a half year period, three year period then in coughs, uh, your wife, Debbie, Debbie, is that correct? Deb. Deb, sorry. <laughs> Deb. She, she smacks me if I call okay. her Debbie. Well, let's okay. erase that then. Debbie, I didn't say that. That's Deb, okay. Uh, so Deb was, she she's seeing these sorts of signs. What was, she, what was, no. she, what was her role in this? And uh, like, like a lot of people, I was able to be the magician and hide all the, the symptoms that I was going through and experiencing. Um, because you're trying so hard not to be mentally unwell. You're, you're trying to, to show everybody, but most importantly yourself, you're okay. You're okay. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. So therefore, the way you mask it, it makes it very, very difficult for people to, to, to see what's actually happening inside. Now, that's not a good thing. But that's the reality of what pe most people go through, I believe, particularly first responders. We are masters at masking. Mm. Because there's a number of factors. Um, for me, back then, um, I was terrified of losing my job. Yeah. yeah that, because back then, if you disclose you're struggling psychologically, um, promotions were gone. Your career path was finished. And in many instances, you're at high risk of being medically discharged. So I never want that to happen. So therefore, you you try whatever you can do to not give any indication you're not well. Has that changed a little bit? Um, there's still those fears. So we need to say, well, how do then do we, how do we notice the changes? And I do believe changes are noticeable, particularly in the workforce. Some of those changes may be indicative that somebody needs a performance review in actual fact, it could be signs that their psychological health is starting to fail on them. So we need to educate managers, supervisors on how to notice the changes and engage in a very practical way to intercept the regression of their psychological health and not make it a work performance matter, but more of a, well, let's look at the possibility that their psychological health is declining first and foremost. Let's work on improving that, and then we'll see if it's actually work-related or whatever we can do. So there's a twofold education stream I see. One is for managers, supervisors, to have the confidence, knowledge, and skills to engage with people who they uh, can see are changing, and how to make that a connection to the person that they are hoping to engage with. That they will then have the confidence that they can trust this person and that they're they have good intentions to help them regain their health first and foremost. So, so Deb was unaware. Uh, your work colleagues unaware. Well, I, in hindsight, once I received my medical file through Freedom of Information, 
and the the statements that people had submitted, clearly they could see there were changes. Okay. Um, I mean, my work performance was suffering. Um, Again, that was a major issue of conflict. Because my work performance was suffering, I, I was threatened with a change in my duty from being a detective to going back on the beat, so to speak. So these were all amplifications of my of my determination to, to, to prove that I wasn't psychologically ill, but it wasn't of any assistance to me. Mm. And then after after the build up of those uh, of those symptoms, did you then seek voluntarily go to seek help, or what happened? Yes, I did. Okay. And was it psychologist, psychiatrist? Was it first of all, uh, it was to a commander who was there on short-term rotation, and his advice was, if you tell anybody about this, uh, your career's over. Keep your mouth shut. I went to uh, our police medical officer, who was a man who I admired and respected and trusted implicitly, and he said basically, if you go on medication. This will show up in your file and you will have serious ramifications. We didn't have psychologists in the town that I was working living in. I didn't know, but we had one psychiatrist. But again, for me to see a psychiatrist, no, sorry, that's mm. not going to happen. I'm, I'm not mad. I don't need mm. a psychiatrist. That was my perception of psychiatry mm. and psychiatrists. I just wanted, I just wanted to get better. So there were a number of factors, but by then, to be very honest, Sam, I was I was at the precipice already. I, I had left it too late. And what we discussed before, had I known about the consequences of the changes in my lifestyle, mm. how, how damaging they could be, if I'd known that, I really believe I would have worked very, very hard to reverse that, that progress and probably could have saved my career. On your own? Correct. And so what what happened then after uh, after you... Uh, your friends or your, your work colleagues said that, you know, not not to report this. This won't look good for your career. This um, then it was a case of professional help was not available. Yeah, the um, then it was a case of you are going back to uniform. Um, okay. And I contacted my my union. They said, well, there's nothing we can do. It's a local command decision. Um, so because I had developed those classic symptoms of suicidal ideation, of mm. feeling hopeless, feeling worthless. Um, no hope for the future, then the, I think that was the time that I really started to plan to end my life. Okay. And um, some other factors uh, ex- amplified those feelings and accelerated my intention to kill myself. And so after that after that attempt um, happened, what what was the next how did what was the intervention? Uh, Without causing any of your listeners distress, which I don't intend to do, I'm not going to go into the details of, of the attempt. No, high level. I just yeah. Yeah, um, but it's it's fair to say that um, it was through a colleague um, intercepting with me physically. Then it was a case of uh, you know, making me safe immediately. Mm-hmm. And back then, Sam, no one knew about how to engage with people who are suicidal. It's, it's like we just didn't know what to do. If it was a civilian who the police were engaging with who was suicidal, then you put the handcuffs on them, put them in the back of the truck, take them to the Jordan Centre, which was a local mental health unit, 
have them scheduled and, and lock them away. That's how we responded to people who were suicidal. So the response was, well, let's get Alan home. So they, a particular person drove me home and said, look, mate, you know, I hope you're going to be okay, all the best, and see you later. So let me walk inside. They then called my wife um, over the police radio and spoke on a, a, a private channel and said, um, I think the words they used were, Al's not well, you better get home. Um, Deb had no idea, and suddenly she gets home and she finds me there just, mm. I believe, just standing in a, in a room just with a broom, sweeping a broom backwards and forwards. Mm. Another colleague arranged for me to be taken to the hospital for crisis counselling. Deb, Deb's got no idea. I'm, I'm on compass, yeah. not communicating. She's got no idea. She has, a, you know, she has a small baby to care for. They take me to the hospital, um, unbeknownst. This, what my colleague who rang up and organised this crisis counselling, he was castigated severely for doing so the next day. So Deb takes me into the counsellor. Um, we both knew the counsellor professionally and we both knew her personally because she played basketball with Deb, I'd coached her. Mm. So we knew our, this counsellor very, very well and she's, she's like, well, what's Al doing here? Why is he here? And obviously she had been briefed that I'd attempted in my life and Clearly, she would never seen any sign of me that I was in such a state. And so the conversation started. Um, I don't know how or whatever. Anyway, to cut a long story short, yeah. I just completely um, became a, a broken, sobbing mess. Yeah. Um, and, and the discussion I had with Sue, uh, she became extremely fearful for the safety of my wife and my daughter because of what she thought I was capable of doing and mm. things that I disclosed to her. Mm. So her first response was completely professional um, and apolog apologetic saying, Deb, look, I'm really sorry, but we've got to schedule Al. And for an operational cop to be scheduled, I mean, that's, you don't do that. That's, that's, the, last, that's the last station. Um, what does scheduling mean? Scheduling means essentially what we used to do to civilians. Okay. We would forcibly restrain them. We would take okay. them to the psychiatric so unit. We'd put them in there. Okay. Not a padded room, but that's an option. Yeah. And basically you would be restrained, heavily medicated, sedated, um, and then try and work life out from there. So as soon as the word schedule was mentioned, that's obviously had a reaction in my brain. It's like, nah, sorry, that's not gonna happen to me. But before I could say anything, um, Deb said to Sue, look, I'm really sorry, Sue, but no, you're not gonna schedule my husband. Probably because she knew had they've done that, then I would have killed myself. Yeah, there was no way I would have come back. So, right. so she said, Sue, I'll take, I'll take um, Alan home. Um, you, can take, you can direct a number of police officers to be in our home to keep me safe and my daughter safe, but he's coming home tonight. On the agreement that she would take me back tomorrow um, for, for clinical intervention. Yeah. And that's where you started your pathway for the clinical intervention? Yeah, and everybody has this perception saying that A, just speak up, and B, get help. Yeah. Unless you've actually been in that situation, the, the concept of help is a, is a multifaceted emotion <laughs> because yeah. perhaps people think, oh, this, he or she is getting help now, so it must be good, it must be positive. But for me, it was a complete opposite. Um, so the next morning, I went back to the police medical officer, again in, in terrible distress. He gets on the phone, contacts the local psychiatrist who works at the local medical uh, sorry, psychiatric unit, and, and Deb basically races me straight up there. In I go, sitting down, and again, I'm just a completely shattered mess. Mm. 
And he was really up front, um, didn't pull me punches, and he said, Al, um, clearly you are in a, in a terrible, terrible state. And I said, I have gone completely mad. He said, no, you haven't gone mad. He said, clearly you have what I believe to be two distinct med- uh, mental illnesses, and he described those, and I'd never heard of PTSD. Um, and he said, but I'll be, I'll be frank, he said, do you want to live or do you want to die? It's your choice. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't particularly want to die, but I'm terrified of what I'm going to do to my family. And so I don't care about me, but it's, it's my family I really worry about. And he said, look, if you, want, if you want to live, then we'll do whatever we can to try and help you. No guarantees. Mm. And that was the situation. So I had to agree to see him three days a week. And I had to agree to take medication, which I did not realise how, how devastatingly life-changing that medication was going to be in a very negative way not a positive way so for me my sense of shame and guilt and humiliation was reinforced by the fact i was seeing a psychiatrist deep down i knew that if i didn't continue to see the psychiatrist i could never get better because i'd reached that point of no return in many ways but this sense of help we need to be very mindful of the impact that help may present to our people we can't just assume it's going to be a positive experience we have to look at the possibility. It could be so damaging to a person that they might opt to end their life because they can't cope with the shame and the guilt of, mm-hmm. of seeing a clinician. And I think when we, when a person reaches that state, we have to be very mindful of that. And that's where we need to tap into that lived experience. You know, what, is it, what was it like for you? What's help, what does help, mean what does that picture you? of help mean for you? Yeah. So it was a process and I was prepared to do whatever it took to get back to work. Because being a cop was all I wanted to do. Being a cop was a major factor in my my life, my sense of purpose, yada, yada. And I wanted to prove to everybody that I was okay. So I did whatever the psychiatrist asked me to do. I took the medication or the two lots of medication he wanted me to take until I could not cope with one particular medication. And I said, can't, can't continue with this. He said, but I think it's done what I've needed it to do to... Uh, break that acute situation. And I said, but I will agree to continue with the antidepressants. And then it was a case of him um, advising me clinically as to how my post-trauma developed, what the causational aspects of it. Never really going into the lead up to it, you know, the, the, the lifestyle changes, how they impact. But whilst he never identified those clearly, what he did do was start to reverse the process to help me rebuild myself physically. So he explained about how important it was for me to get good sleep. And he started me doing meditation, which I didn't realise meditation involved diaphragmatic breathing and how critically important that is to reversing stress and the impact on the brain. And cutting out uh, caffeine was critically important because it explains the stimulant and certainly cutting out alcohol. So in a way, he was educating me about how to reverse the process and heal me physically as well as trying to heal me psychologically. Now, unfortunately, um, his time at Costa came to an end and there was no one there to, to provide any, any further service from a clinical perspective. By that stage, I had a pretty good idea of what, what I needed to do and how I needed to keep going. And I was working really hard to rebuild physically and psychologically. And I go to my GP for repeat med- prescriptions, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And all the time hoping that I could get back to work because that was so important. 18 months down the track, um, I got a phone call from headquarters saying, congratulations, your last day of work was two weeks ago 
and all the best. And that was it. Career over. That was it? Yep. What year was that? 90? That was in um, February 2000. Sorry, beg your pardon. February 1998. 1998. So this was this was after 96. This was after when you rescued the boy in Coffs? Yes. Okay. Because uh, that's where you got your cross, um, the cross of valor. Is yes. That correct? Uh, the... The, was that a was that one of your highs for you? Look, I will, for as long as I have a memory, um, I will never forget the euphoria of holding that little child in my arms uh, way down that drain system. I mean, it was just six hundred meters. Is that right? Well, he was washed six hundred meters down, and my colleague and I, Gavin Dengate. Uh, we we tried to search the initial parts of the drain to try and find the boy, and that was a very traumatic experience. And then when we heard that they could hear the child's screams way down the other end of the where we were, we went down there and we got back into the into the drain system. We were also assisted phenomenally by a, a paramedic, Michael Maher. So ultimately, we. We were, and I say we, we, we saved that child's life. And But to be stuck up that drain system and to, first of all, to see the little boy, I mean, I could hear him screaming. I could, the screams were not pleasant. Um, but I could then I could see the little boy's face. And Which then I knew could, he was alive too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was, then it was a race against time to get him out before we all drowned. So, but the actual euphoria of having that child in my arms was something I will never forget. And whilst that night, um, it was, uh, and again, it was it was euphoria. We, we, we saved this boy's life. Against all odds, we had saved his life. And that night, you know, we had lunch, we had beers, we went to the pub, we drank that night. Um, we were all on a, an amazing high. And I think that was based on the amount of adrenaline that we were still coursing yeah. through our bodies. But after, and that night I didn't sleep, I couldn't sleep. But then the next day I had to go to Goulburn for a homicide investigator's course. I didn't sleep for a week. And I think in hindsight, Sam, probably that week of not sleeping, I think was probably the most significant factor in my ultimate complete psychological breakdown. Is that right? Yep. I would say that was one of the key aspects of my, my complete breakdown was that not sleeping for a week. I did not realise that not sleeping, not getting quality sleep for one night is so damaging. But because of the state of psychological ill health I was, mm. that week of not sleeping was like the, the sledgehammer to the back of the head. Yeah. And there was no getting up from that. And we're not talking about just dazing in and out of sleep. We're talking about not sleeping at all. Yeah, we're just, we're just lying awake. Um, every time I close my eyes, those screams would just rattle my brain. The, the picture of this little boy in my eyes, um, yeah. the, t the terror in his face. Mm. Um, you know, I nearly died in that drain system myself. Mm. Um, these things, I just couldn't close my eyes. Yeah. So the result was really, really good, right? I mean, like that for that outcome oh, yeah, to happen yeah. was amazing, but it's interesting to see the effect that that yes. also had on you. Correct. It wasn't. Yeah, and, I, and I'll do it all again, don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm still in, in a very pos relation, positive relationship with the little boy who's mm. now a grown man. Mm. 
um, and his wife and his family. It's a very positive relationship. Mm. And I do not regret one second of my time in that drain system to try and save his life. And we did save his life. Yeah. But, but also I'm very accepting that I now have a much clearer picture as to why yeah. things happened to me. So then if we go forward to when you got thanked for your service uh, and two days ago you were done, uh, how, how did, I mean, what did you do? How did that make you feel? Obviously you- Suicidal, I wanted to kill myself. Yeah, right. Because for me, I had no hope. And that was your identity? Well, it was, it was a major part of it, but also so many things associated with it. Because of who I was, um, I mean, there had been so much media attention about the rescue of this little boy. It was, it was one of the you know, biggest news stories across the country that this little boy's life had been saved. Because that was 96, this is two years later. Yeah, so. yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd been the president of the rugby union club, I'd been a representative rugby union player, uh, you know, so coach of my wife's basketball team, involved in a number of organisations in the community. So, so much had been, had changed, you know, my own perception of me, my own self-esteem had been completely and totally destroyed. But trying it very hard to rebuild all that and regain it. So that one phone call swept all of that away. It was all gone again. And because I had worked so hard mm. for so long to get better, I thought, you know, what's, what's the point? Yeah. What, what have I got to, I got nothing. I have nothing. And I think for, for so many people like me, once, if they are discharged against their wishes or, or for whatever reason that it's not a positive disengagement, I think they also feel, I've got no hope for the future mm. because that's how you feel, mm. that you're, everything has just been sucked out of you and you, you're just completely hollow inside and, and it's, you're too busted and broken to think you can ever possibly come back from it. So, so what did you do then? You uh... very quickly worked out how it could end it all. Okay. Um, I had and still have the most amazing human being in my life being my wife. Yeah. Clearly, Deb was was much wiser now to the impact of events on me psychologically. Mm. And she saw that this phone call, this, this disengagement had absolutely crushed me. Mm. So she stepped in and was very proactive about keeping me alive just by saying, no matter what, we are gonna get through this. We, we will do whatever it takes, we will get through this. And you are possibly going to endure however long of absolute hell by what you've lost, but don't give up, mm. we will work it out. And it was always we, not well you've got to work mm. something out, if you've got to go and do this, we will work it out. She stuck th with me mm. and had stuck through with me through the worst of the worst. And how she ever did that, I honestly don't know, but she refused to let me go. And slowly but surely, I was able to calm down, settle down, think about things, um, and start to make changes. Now, it suddenly didn't become all better. No. It, um, life was shit for a lot, pardon me, but life was no. that way for a very long time. And, you know, I was terrified of applying for a job because I never wanted to disclose why I lost my last job. So there's no way I could ever apply for a job. 
you know, I, I used to deliver subpoenas around for a, a legal a friend who was a lawyer. You know, I'd get twenty dollars per subpoena, and on a good day, I'd deliver three. I didn't have many good days. Yeah. Some days I'd deliver one, sometimes two, mm. and I used to just sit in my car and smoke and, and mm. think, "This is this is where your life is at. Mm. This is where you got to." So, were you still getting professional help throughout that? No, because I had okay. no one. The psychiatrist had left quite a long time before. Okay. So there was no one that around, um, and I, I just, I just thought, what's the point? What's the point? So for a long time, I was, um, you know, on the edge of suicide. Not that I ever disclosed that to Deb because I did not, did not want her to go through what she'd gone through before. Oh, yeah. But she was just constantly there. It'll, you know, we will get through it. We will get through it. Things will change, but. And I would still kept going to the gym, still worked really hard on keeping myself physically mm. well. And then, then things changed and I started to think about, well, how do you do have a lot of really good skills and you need to use those skills for good purpose? And I think most first responders, it's all about they love to care for other people, they love to help people. That's why they become mm. cops, paramedics and fireys and so volunteers. Mm. They want to help people. And I, I think it's very important, Sam, that we, we do recognise our volunteers, our SES, our VRAs, mm. all those people who go out of their way to care for people, mm. giving their own time. And we must not separate first responders to permanents and volunteers. Mm. Yes. So it was in identifying what my skills were, how could I adapt them? And I then started to utilise those skills and started to look at opportunities. And they grew and they grew and they grew and they grew. And then I went back to college, became retrained as a marine surveyor, okay. um, looked at things I loved to do. So I used to love scuba diving, became qualified as a dive master. So oh. I spent a lot of time under the water as well as on top of the water. Um, and that was very beneficial to my psychological recovery, mm -hmm. doing things in a positive way. And ultimately, um, I was able then to, to turn my, all my experiences into a positive but it never ever replaced my real sense of worth. And I think that's probably when I realised that I wasn't getting it back the way I wanted to. Um, and I'm not sure what happened as a causation, but I know that my mental health started to decline and I had to go back from, for some more psychiatric assessments. And um, again, when you're told that basically you're unemployable, that's not a good thing. Mm. That's a very damaging thing. But I said basically, uh, Psychologically, you really are unemployable, which to me says you're worthless. And that was after many years of, of working very, very hard to build up very good businesses and very profitable businesses. But one psychiatrist I saw was a very, very clever man and, and he, he paid great respect to how hard I'd worked to rebuild my life. And he acknowledged that, but he said, Al, there's clearly something that you're lacking and I think that's your sense of worth and purpose that you've got to you, you've got to try and get back somehow. And I said, yeah. In hindsight, I, I miss my job. Yeah, I, I miss the cops every day. I wanted to go back. Blah blah blah. And he said, uh, yeah. You know, what is it you you would really love to do? And I just blurted out, so I, I want to get a boat and sail across the nation. So he said, well, you should think about doing that. So, so that's that's pretty much the day that. Um, things started to change and, and how my life changed significantly from that point on. And so was through that whole time of you reskilling and doing other things, studying, was Deb still active in the, in the police? Was she still in there? She was, yeah. Okay. 
And she, uh, after our first child was born, Deb was promoted six weeks after our first child was born. So Deb was back working full time. Her mum died, sorry, yeah, her mum died just a few weeks before my suicide attempt. And the work Deb was involved in, she was in charge of the child protection team. So she was investigating and prosecuting offenders for very serious child sexual abuse, physical abuse. So she had a horrendously difficult job. And here she was doing her job, caring for her, her, her baby, grieving for her mother. And here she is with her husband who's suicidal. I mean, how, where she gets her strength, her strength from, I have no idea. But she is the most amazing human being. Yeah, what an amazing woman. Wow. I mean, how lucky, I guess, are you to have a support network from, you know, a person like Deb? Yeah, and that's, and that's again where we're failing, Sam. We're failing to, to recognise those who support mm. and care for their, their partners. And we're failing to help them learn how to care and support for their partners. How do they, how do they keep going when, when life becomes unbearable and intolerable? And it does reach that point. Mm. We all know that. So we, but again, it gets to, well, how about we look at not letting people get to this state in the first place? Mm. Isn't that a far better approach to actually prevent this stuff from happening or reduce the severity of it or reduce the incidence of it? That's, I, I believe, it's where we are failing completely. Yes. Deb had no idea. She had no support. Um, it was just her own inner strength kept her going mm. yeah i mean that's amazing and what a yeah as i said amazing woman to, to have in your support network yeah. and uh you're right i mean there needs to be more out there for carers um and the support networks of people with mental ill health uh, and there's seems to be a few coming through at the moment but uh i'm sure it's, it's an emerging space yeah uh and it's something that's going to continue to evolve how as someone who's who is psychologically and mentally uh, and physically fit and healthy, to go to the other end of the spectrum, uh, mental ill health, obviously, physical ill health, um, uh, suicidal, to then come back to the other end as well, right? Because that's the big thing that is amazing about your journey is that you're proof of someone that can, that's been in that state, never happened to me, bulletproof um, to then fall victim to that. Yep. But then to be able to then come back out as a result uh, of, of great support network, but then also to do some amazing things since then is just amazing, isn't it? Well, it's it's a matter of, uh, yeah, again, that, that really lovely benefit of finding that book that I've been looking for to, to discover why. Mm. Yes, I've been clinically diagnosed with two mental illnesses and yes, those were attributed to unique critical instances I was involved in, but now being able to identify uh, the changes in my lifestyle, how they also contributed, uh, that was very important. So what I have been able to do is I identify what the changes were and how to do whatever I can to ensure that those changes don't happen again yes so i live by the principles i ask others to live by so i want to be the living breathing example of how i want others to be isn't that, isn't that so crucial because we all 
have these things that we think is true and correct and you should the values but yet we're, we're all people are guilty to some degree sometimes of, of all of a sudden telling people to do things but they're not doing it themselves yeah, which i find totally hypocritical and insulting yes um i mean clearly you are an extremely fit and healthy person and that i think is imperative because of who you represent and what you are trying to do you are trying to encourage people to be physically and mentally healthy anybody who is not prepared to do the hard work to be that representative um, doesn't deserve to be in the space and i think what we have allowed to happen over the time is anybody can come into the mental health sector that's fine but ultimately are they a true living breathing representative of how we want people to be mm. physically and mentally because i believe they both go hand in hand yes and it's 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 not good enough just to say well yeah i i have the i have the intellectual capacity to provide knowledge to people about what they need to do but you've got to step up yeah yeah you've got to be there so i do a lot of work in the first responder field um education wise yeah but also I, I put the hard work in to make sure that physically uh, I am yes. where I want those people to be. So at, at my age, I'm still playing competitive rugby union. I've done boxing for the police legacy boxing tournament. I still train really hard. Um, I'm very mindful of what I eat. I'm very careful of what I consume alcohol wise. Mm -hmm. um, I made a vow to my daughter nearly 21 years ago that I'd never smoke again. Um, I have never had a cigarette since. Oh, congratulations. I love a cup of coffee, as we all do today. Yeah. But I'm very mindful of, of how to maintain high levels of physical and mental health. Mm. Does it come easy? No. Have In the past few years, have I still been smashed by various things? Yes, I have. Mm. Um, I love to use the mental health continuum, which divides a state of psychological health into four colours. Um, yeah. Have I been crossed into that red zone again? Of course I have. Mm -hmm. We all travel backwards and forwards across it. Yes. And I've spent extensive periods in that red zone. Mm -hmm. But what I do is I now know how to get out of that and get back to where I want to be. Because you're equipped with the tools and you know the correct the things that you need to do to drive yourself that will affect the result. Correct. Of you being mentally and healthy. Correct. Yeah, physically. And I can I can I use technology to assist me. Yes. Um, I wear a device that measures what my sleep quality is, it measures my cardiovascular fitness levels, yep. it measures my resting heart rate. I use technology to assist me, to reward me when I'm improving and to give myself a kick in the bum mm. when I can see those levels going in the reverse. So technology is a great tool if, it, if it's used to our advantage. Yes. Let's talk about your journey, I mean, on the boat. Uh, so you sailed with your wife and two kids. Is that correct? Yes. Where, where, where from? Well, the after that discussion with the psychiatrist, I flew home to Coffs Harbour, Deb picked me up from the airport and she said, hi, babe, how are you? I said, yeah, pretty good. She said, how was that? I said, actually, it was really good. He's a really, really good guy. And she said, well, you know, any, any new advice? And he said, yeah. And she said, well, okay, share it with me. Um, he said, I've got to get a boat and sail across an ocean. Thank you, thanks, Deb. <laughs> she said, oh, you, idiot, you are mad. Because um, Deb <laughs> suffers from, like, chronic seasickness. Like, no one I know suffers seasickness like Deb. She would have loved hearing that. Yeah, yeah, like a knot. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we had further discussions about it. And, and 
and basically, the, I think where it came from was that when I was in the psych unit, um, it wasn't a pleasant place, to be honest. And when I was waiting to see the psychiatrist, I used to just close my eyes and, and put myself somewhere else. And that was just happened to be on a boat on an ocean. Not, not a big boat, but a sailing boat. So probably I had a deep part of my brain was, was thinking about that. So Deb said, well, what are you going to do? Um, I said, well, maybe we could just learn how to sail and just see what happens there. She said, okay. So she was prepared to do some sailing courses with me. And it was really funny because the navigation charts we used to use for our courses were in the English Channel. It was uh, England to France to the Channel Islands and back around. And the tidal ranges, like the difference between high tide and low tide over there, it's like 13, 14 metres. It's just ridiculous. And we used to laugh and joke with, oh, thank goodness, mm. we'll never have to worry about sailing over there. Think, yeah, we'll do our mm. things. We'll, we'll get qualified, yada, yada. So we got qualified and we took the kids away. We, we rented a boat, we did some sailing and they've got chronically seasick. Um, but our first boat we rented was in New Zealand. And then we went to the chemist and, and Deb said, yeah, I, I'm just getting so seasick. And he gave her these uh, tablets and stopped the seasickness. And Deb said, wow, this is really good. This is great. So we, we did some more sailing and, and these tablets were Deb's saviour. And then um, I drove Deb mad you know, looking for boats and, and, I, and I finally found a, a boat that I thought fitted the bill. And I was very excited and I told Deb about this boat. She said, oh, it sounds really good, darling. Um, how are you going to pay for it? And I said, oh, well, I'm not sure about that yet. And she said, where is it? And I said, uh, it's in England. And she said, okay, smarty, how are you going to get to England? And I said, no idea. She said, well, I'm, we're not going to use the money to... Um, so I thought, okay, there goes that boat. And I was tossed and turned and thought, and I said, ah, oh, we've got enough frequent flyers. So I, um, I tapped Deb on the shoulder very early one morning and Deb being Deb, she got out of bed and went and rang up Qantas frequent flyers about three o'clock in the morning. And then two hours later, I had tickets to go to England to look at this boat. Got over to England and um, surveyed the boat and had the boat surveyed by an independent surveyor. Did some sea trials and despite promising not to enter any financial negotiations, um, rang Debs up and in a very excited state, she said, oh, what have I got to do? I said, you need to go and see the bank manager. <laughs> and she said, yeah, is, this, is this really going to help? And I said, I think it will. She said, okay. So I flew home. I was only over there for a week. Um, flew home and well, that's, I got home and Debs said, I've organised tickets for us. And Deb had organised one-way tickets to leave Australia um, in March the following year. Because this was December, I went over mm. just before Chrissy. And how she organised these tickets, I don't know, but it was just a gift from God. Anyway, we sold up most of our possessions and said goodbye to our family and friends. And my girls were 9 and 14 and we flew on one-way tickets to England and got on board our boat. And we didn't have any plans, no ideas, just that Deb knew that for me, this was possibly a way for, for me to get my, my sense of worth back. And I have to clarify this, Sam, that I don't suggest for one moment that anybody who has severe yeah. mental illnesses or whatever has to buy a boat. No. What I do recognise is that when a person has lost their career or has lost their sense of worth, 
we need to identify what it is that will give them back their sense of worth. Mm -hmm. For me, um, that was yes. what I had hoped, and in turn, turned out it was, which helped me recover in a, in a tremendously positive way. So that was the, the, the thing, and we, we got our boat, we got on board, and from there, ultimately, as we know, as the history books tell us, we actually sailed that boat all the way back to Australia. And how long did it take you? Nearly two years. And, I mean, you guys would have, I mean, best friends, well, scissors, paper, rock, you would have, what, what sort of games? Were you playing Uno? You were... We, well, <laughs> we, we read, we talked, Books. we laughed. Yeah. We, we had so many amazing experiences. It was, it was extraordinary. And, but again, the fact that Deb was prepared to do, that. do those things, mm -hmm. it, it again, it shows the value of uncompromising support. Mm. And again, we are failing to realise the importance of uncompromising support. Mm. So, yeah, it was a phenomenal journey. Um, we never ever planned to go back to Australia. It just grew organically. And what I did see was that it's so important that what the principles that we applied are what we are failing to apply today in relation to mental, as you say correctly, and you're one of the only people I have heard for a very long time, you correctly identify mental ill health. Everybody's morphing mental health as mental illness. So yeah. thank you for, for being so articulate. <laughs> So what we did, like when we decided to bring the boat home, it meant sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. So we met up with a lot of other boats in, a, in the Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco. So we were there for two weeks and we spoke to experts about what are the risks we are going to face to sail this boat across the ocean. What do we need to do to keep our boats safe? What do we need to do to keep ourselves physically and mentally well across mm. this very high-risk endeavour because mm. it it's, it's extremely dangerous to sail a boat across any ocean, particularly the Atlantic Ocean. So here were these kids, so young, and another young boy from Cross Harbour had actually joined us. So we had a very, very inexperienced crew, but we identified the risks, we knew what could go wrong, and we were very proactive about ensuring they didn't go wrong. It wasn't a case of well, it doesn't matter because See what if, happens. if we start to sink, <laughs> we've got a life raft, we've got a satellite phone, we can call for help. Yeah, yeah, let's call for help. Let's speak up and call for help. Yeah, my boat's sinking. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, well, good luck. <laughs> Just we'll, we'll contact somebody for you. Yeah. That's the attitude in relation to the mental health problem. Yeah. Just speak up and get help. No, be proactive so mm. your boat doesn't sink. So your, your work environment is safe or as safe as it can be and you know how to keep yourself physically and mentally really, really healthy. Mm. We sailed that boat 16,000 nautical miles back to Australia. We arrived back in Australia with our boat in a wonderful state and all of us in the best physical and mental health we, state we have ever been. Would you, I mean, do your kids still talk about it now? We talk about it nearly every day. Do you really? Yeah. Best thing you ever did? Yes. But we... But we, we have learned so much consciously and subconsciously about that endeavour. 
But the key element I, I really draw from the whole thing is, if you create an environment that is safe and your people are educated about how to keep themselves safe, they are then in a position to care for others, to keep them safe. So our boat consisted of five crew, one of whom was too young to have an active watch to be in control of the boat. The four other people had the lives of four other people in their hands at any one time. So as soon as you were on watch, you had the lives of four other people, including yours, so it's five, in your hand. So this is a 15-year-old child, this is an 18-year-old young man who are given the responsibility of caring for the lives of others. But because they are in a, such a good state of physical and mental health, they're ready to do that and they're prepared to do that mm. and they have the capability to do that. So we can do it, Sam. We really can do it. So, so that's your segue into actually the organisational side of things too because you are now doing this in organisations. Is that correct? You're yes. going into them, you're identifying the psychological risks yes. and you're actually preparing plans put in place to make the workplace safer. Well, we, no, we start out with individuals. So we make the individual aware of how their health can decline, physical and mental, and how to reverse that process, ultimately leading them to be in a state of high level physical and psychological health. Okay. If we can keep individuals psychologically and physically healthy, we can then build on that. But we have to start individually. And work's only one facet of that, isn't it? Of course it is. Because there's obviously your sleep, moving your body, um, nourishing your body, yes. uh, all that sort of stuff yep. as well, which is hardly just the employer that's in charge of that. Correct. So we have to, and we have to identify the people who are doing it really well. Yep. There's so much focus on people who are not well. Yeah. And I think what we're failing to do is recognise and, and, and reward the people who are the living, breathing examples of how everybody wants to be. Mm. And I think that's it. We have that capability to, mm. to change what I call shift the focus and put the spotlight on those, not only individuals in the workplace, but those employers who are doing amazing things to keep their people physically and psychologically well or and overcome this terrible insecu insecurity that's permeating our workforce today. Mm. You know, I think that's one of our big problems is people are just so frightened about their future. Is my contract going to be renewed? Will I have a job next week? Will my industry still be around? Yes. <laughs> so that, but that's the reality, Sam. So yeah. if we can't change that, how do we educate the people to manage the impact of that on them? Mm. And that's what we, we can do. We really can. We just need to be a lot smarter about how things are done. So what, what does the future hold for you? Uh, I know Actually, if we go to 2016, when you, you rescued an Indigenous man on a railway in Redfern, that that was nothing to do with being on duty. You weren't obviously in the police force. You were just there as a as a bystander. It was actually 2014. 2014, was it? But the award was made in 2016. Okay. So my gorgeous youngest daughter um, has a, a love for a product called Lush which is bath bombs and all this okay. sort of stuff, all the feel-good stuff. And uh, she wanted to go into town to buy some Lush products. So we got to the railway station and we realised with the track work, um, our normal routine was, was 
change. So we had to go through a different system. We get into town, we got the products, we caught a train back to Redfern Station and all the trains out of the city were coming on one line through the underground line. So all those lines were converging into one. So the traffic out of the, tra the city was a lot higher. And also all the trains coming into the city were going through on one line. So probably subconsciously, I realised that there was a, a lot more traffic through this, just two, two tracks in the underground section of Redfern Railway Station. Anyway, we're there waiting for our train. Um, an Aboriginal man came down the escalators. He was, you know, he was, he was smartly dressed, as in casual clothes. Um, but he just started to do sort of circles around, around the bottom of the escalator. I thought, that's a bit strange. But I was just talking to my daughter, and then this really strange noise, like a collective gasp of everyone on the platform. And people were heading towards the side of the platform. So I ran over and I looked down and here was this, this man laying on his back in the tracks. Um, and then I heard a noise, which I think was the PA announcing when the next train was due. And I, I remember I flicked my head around, I looked at the electronic timetable and I could see that the train was due in one minute. So it was then of, well, if I don't do anything, that man's dead. And if I'm going to do something, I really haven't got long to, <laughs> to yeah. think about it. So I jumped onto the tracks and I quickly assessed him as, as best I could, looking for blood from the ears or, and he was so semi-conscious, but there just wasn't time to do anything except get him off where he was onto the platform. And I'll laugh about it now, but I remember looking past his feet towards down, down the tunnel, looking for where that train was coming, but I was looking the wrong way. Oh, I was going to say, was it the right way or not? <laughs> no, it was coming the other way. Probably a good thing. Um, and I physically lifted him up and wow. I held him up and passed him to the people who were on the platform. So I had the physical capability to do that, to jump down it's on a fully the fully man. Yeah, he wasn't a tall man, he wasn't a mm. big man, but I, I he was he wasn't moving. Mm. So he wasn't supporting himself. He wasn't Lifeless. I had lived, mm. he, exactly. So I had the the psychological presence to be able to do that, I had the physical capability to do that. So I was in that state of being able to, mm. to do it. And I lifted him up, gave him to the people, and then there was a young bloke on the platform about your size, like strong, fit, healthy young bloke. And I've put my hand out and he was to haul me up. And then I've grabbed him and I pulled so hard I nearly pulled him over my head. <laughs> we had to readjust and then he, he pulled me back up on the platform because I, I just wasn't able to get up myself. Wow. And then we got up and I checked, I checked this man and said, you know, is everything all right? Can I get you an ambulance? He said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, it's okay. Um, my youngest daughter um, is autistic and she was, was standing there watching what was going on. She was very, very distressed. Yeah. So my immediate response is I've got to care for my daughter. And by then um, our train had pulled up. So I just grabbed her, jumped on the train. And there were some people who got on the train with me and we had a conversation. And then we, uh, we went on to the next stop, which, which is my home. Wow. And for a long time, we, we never knew who it was. Um, and then through fate again, I found out who it was and had some conversations with the man. And I never believed that he'd tried to end his own life. I never thought that. And I saw there's all the footage captured the whole thing. Mm. And he never smelled of alcohol. Um, 
So I thought, no, something's out of, out of the ordinary here. And I was talking to him and the obvious thing came up, yeah, what, what actually happened? And he said, I just saw the train pull in and I saw the doors open up and I just stepped onto the train. He said, that's what I saw. And he said, that's what happened. And when you look at the footage, you can see that's exactly what happened. He just steps right. out and, and falls down onto the tracks. So there was never, so for me, it, I felt vindicated that I did not believe he'd tried to end his yeah. life. And clearly he hadn't. Yeah. Um, but his life was saved. Yeah. It's just instinctive for you to do, to do this. I mean, that's uh, still 20 years. Uh, well, okay, 18 years or so after you were uh, terminated from police. But, I mean, you've, you've got it in you. Well, I think... I, I often get... Um, have these discussions about uh, what, what's in us as human beings. And we all have the capacity to care. Every one of us has the capacity to care. But it's how willing to care can make the difference. Mm. I say this, that first responders, permanents and volunteers have this extraordinary willingness to care. And I think that makes all first responders extremely courageous. Yes. 100% I agree with that. And uh, like you said, there are uh, amazing people who are doing amazing jobs and we need to do better to help care for them uh, and actively try and intercept um, before it gets to a point where it's Correct. too late. So, Total agreements. Uh, so, that, man, that's, that's really good. And that's, I mean, you, you've shared with us some, an amazing story of, of your journey. What's the future hold for you? So what are you doing now and, and how do people get hold of you? Well, I was with the Mental Health Commission. I was one of the Deputy Commissioners. Yes. And under the Mental Health Commission Act, two of the Deputy Commissioners had to have a lived experience of mental illness. Um, I joined the Commission with the intention of making significant difference, because that's what I wanted to do. That's what I needed to be, needed to be done. Uh, my perception of what could happen as to what was being done didn't meet. So I made the choice to leave the Commission and then have the ability to do whatever I can to change the way things are. So we improve the mental and physical health of as many people across the country that we possibly can. So I am actively involved in delivering programs and, and presentations that relate to the causational aspects of the changes in our mental health from a positive to a negative and how to intercept those changes and or reverse the changes. So it's all about proactivity and continuing to learn about why, why people's health changes, mm. engage with clinicians. So you know, I've just come back from uh, the Riverina of New South Wales where, where I work with a, a brilliant psychologist delivering presentations and programs for a city council down there. And it just worked so brilliantly, the response we received. I'm sure we changed the lives of hundreds of people in, in two days. It was just extraordinary. Wow. So this is the stuff that I love to do. I'm still an ambassador for Beyond Blue mm -hmm. and Kookaburra Kids, uh, which are very, very powerful in, in the way they do things. Um, I'm on the board of the Gidget Foundation, which provides direct support for men and women who are suffering from perinatal anxiety and depression or a way that they may develop it.
which is a lovely model that I see that people with a particular uh, illness or fear of an illness can get direct support relative to that mental illnesses or mental illnesses. And that's a model I really like to see that you're not trying to find out where to go and get help. Mm. You can say, that's where I need to go to. So that's a model I really, really like. Um, and I, I do a lot of other, other work with volunteer organisations. I still do a lot of volunteer work, but also it's important that um, we, we don't allow ourselves to become over-absorbed in the frustration of what I see are some of the problems in the mental health sector. Yeah. We just need to be very clear on our, on our, on our goals, what we want to achieve, mm -hmm. and we do whatever we can to, to help each of us and as many as we can achieve those goals. And how can people get in touch with you? Uh, very simply, I mean, my website um, yep. has a contact page. Yes. www.allen.sparks.com. I'm active on social media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, particularly, and Instagram. So, yeah, through social media, through my website, people can contact me. And I really like to engage with people who have the courage to say, let's change this. Let's let's really make the difference. Be proactive. Be proactive. Let's not wait for something to happen. Let's Correct. get out there now. Let's and not. Oh, so you go. Yeah. Let's not the, let the mask fall off before we start to call for help. Yeah. Let's make sure the mask doesn't fall off. And, and it's not just emergency services sectors that you're doing this in. No. no it's across everything. Private corporate sectors, um, first responders, and it's uh, look, the appetite is there. People are are really starting to sit up and take notice, which is fantastic. Well, Alan, what, a, what an amazing journey, an amazing story, but uh, I mean, the experience, the adventures, the achievements that you've, that you've accomplished in your life to date is amazing. So I'm sure uh, the next part of your life is going to continue to be <laughs> uh, a, an interesting ride and, and, uh, and lucky man to have Deb in your life and your, and your kids. So yeah. um, congratulations on, on a great career and a great life so far. Thank you, Sam. Um, and, look, and thanks for the opportunity to to, uh, to get these messages out. You know, yeah. if it's not for people like you who are looking at things through different lenses, and that's what I, I'm very, very excited about, that that a person in your positions can see what needs to be done. So I'm very grateful for you to have this opportunity that we can start the groundwork and, and, and get, get things changed. That's okay. I I don't know if I'm doing it well, but I'm doing it. You're and trying. We'll worry yeah, about yeah. it uh, later yeah. on. But uh, mate, I, I think it's great that uh, that you've you know, invested your time with us today. Yes. And the hope with this is to create a ripple for change for mental health so that people who are out there listening can actually go and do something as a result of listening to these amazing stories. Uh, and so for any listeners out there thinking uh, about uh, getting someone in to help with some organisational change and culture and looking to take a proactive step towards improving uh, mental and physical health uh, of your people in your organization, be sure to reach out to Alan. Alan, thanks very much for coming. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. 
Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.